There's been an enormous amount of change in business in the last 18 months, perhaps more than I've seen in my entire business lifetime up till now. And I'm keen to examine uh, what some of these changes might be and what opportunities these might uh, present. Uh, why am I qualified to do this? Well, uh, I am a businessman, a coach, an entrepreneur, um, an investor. I've uh, set up more than 30 companies. I floated business on the stock market, led hostile takeovers. Um, and I guess I've, it's not always been glamorous, but I've worked at the coalface of business Britain. Um, but why should you take my word for it? Uh, I've prepared a list of 10 questions and I'm going to ask the same 10 questions to six different people from completely disparate areas. Uh, some people from the arts, billionaires, economists, uh, comedians, and I'm asking them a whole range of questions uh, from how they think uh, life, business life will be in post-Brexit, post-Covid Britain. Uh, to the advice that they might give uh, give their children and what they think about climate change. Um, and I look forward to exploring those conversations. Today, I'm privileged and excited to be talking to Anne Hyatt. Uh, Anne is sitting in Spain. I'm sitting in uh, New York. Um, um, but we'll ask the same 10 questions that we've asked everybody else. Welcome, Anne. Good morning. Uh, you know, I'm really excited to be talking to, um, to Anne. I think she's had a, a more interesting uh, career than certainly most people that I've, uh, that I've met. She spent 15 years working as the right hand, really, for three of the most influential tech pioneers uh, in history. I'm think I'm exaggerating. That's uh, Jeff Bezos at uh, Amazon, who I think she tried to kill in a helicopter at one point. <laughs> Did. Uh, Marissa Mayer, uh, who's former CEO of Yahoo, and more recently, Eric Schmidt, CEO of uh, Google. So I think we can safely say that you've been in the thick of it. Um, yeah. I have learned a bit more about Anne because she's kindly sent me a pre-published version of her book, Bet on Yourself. And uh, it's pretty interesting that she's just met most people, really. <laughs> people she's met here. I'm just reading out here. She's met the Pope, uh, Moses, Jesus, Abraham, <laughs> Harry Connick Jr., Henry VIII, and three of his wives. Florence Nightingale, Rasputin, Catwoman, the real Santa Claus in person. That was obviously before the scandal with uh, Rudolph. Uh, actually, I might be getting carried away here, but um, but welcome, Anne. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Gary. And your your list isn't too far off, actually. I once lost my phone in Dubai and nearly had a heart attack thinking of if someone found access to my Rolodex. <laughs> but no, Santa, not quite yet. <laughs> and and I'm on a serious note. Who, who's the most interesting person that you've met? Are you allowed to say? Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. Um, my personal favorite, honestly, was meeting Barack Obama. Eric oh, um, right. yes. brought me with him to the White House. He had a private lunch with him while he was still president. And um, I think as an American, especially one who was uh, born into a military family, my dad was a fighter pilot. It was a very special day. I think he's an incredible human and it was a great privilege to be in there. But honestly, the list is long. I have been so blessed to meet incredible thinkers, innovators, humanitarians. Uh, I think that's honestly the favorite part of my very unexpected career was the people that I got to interact with. 
it's interesting how a lot of things um it's it, you're you're an absolute half and half of astute planning and accidental serendipity yes um, you're a kind of combination of those two things um so I'm, I'm keen to get started on the 10 questions but before we do that reading through your book um i was expecting it to be perhaps a lot more focused on the tech side and then there was something about a third of the way through that kind of smacked me in the head really um and that was that you were saying that determination trumps natural talent which i absolutely agree with but but i really want to kind of try and push you on that so and i'm not going to put words in your mouth but saying determination trumps natural talent so are you really saying that kind of hard work and tenacity trumps creativity and innovation or am i pushing you too far there I would say that one leads to the other. I don't see them. Maybe they're two sides of the same coin. I think when you have that grit, ambition, and tenacity, innovation is its byproduct. So I do think that I use my my individual career as a case study in the book because I do think I'm an example of a normal person. I have been in the rooms with some of the most influential, literally the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. And what I've done in the book is try and translate those best practices for us normal people. And the reason why I think that's a worthy effort is because I think each individual, regardless of their seniority, their expertise, their access to formal education, you have something uniquely yours through your DNA, your unique nature, your nurturing. And I think I I truly believe that anyone who has a vision, who has that desire for something, you can learn for that. And I think my interview experience with Jeff Bezos is a great illustration because when I interviewed with him, I had no experience. It was my first job out of university. I had no expertise. There's a reason why one of the greatest visionaries of our time chose someone like me who was textbook novice. I think in that interview process, he saw those seeds of capability in the future, but he hired me for my grit, ambition, drive, and tenacity. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you should say that because I, when I'm doing some coaching of, of younger people and, and kind of talking about entrepreneurship, which, which, which is a proud, should be a proud word, I think, um, and encouraging people to kind of uh, set up on their own business. I often run across a lot of people who are waiting for the right idea and then they're waiting too long for the right idea as though you know some epiphany will will come along and, and then that'll be the next airbnb whereas I, i'm tending to encourage people to say find something that you're really passionate about and and do it incredibly well because being good in business isn't about being good it's actually just about being better than the next person a lot of the time and if you pick something an everyday thing you know run a pizza restaurant or but if you do it incredibly well with passion and drive and determination then i think you can still reach the uh, reach the top of your uh, of your tree i absolutely agree with you uh you remind me of a quote i think it was from reed hoffman where he says if you're not in embarrassed of the first version you launch you waited too long and I really think that's true. I, I am a natural perfectionist. My nature is all the negative connotations of a perfectionist. I would hold myself back from something just because I was afraid of not doing it perfectly. I would I would not raise my hand out of fear of judgment or embarrassing myself in front of people whose opinions I cared about. Thankfully, my unexpected career in tech nurtured that out of me. That didn't last past the first day. And that is the greatest gift my career in tech has given me is taught me that... Um, 
the effort, the process, the learning that comes from trying something, learning something, pivoting and doing it differently next time for better results is what success looks like. And I would hope this next generation of entrepreneurs, I think it's really hard for them because in this Instagrammed world where you're seeing the end of everyone else's journeys or these falsified versions of perfection of their daily lives, it can it can really hold you back because you it looks like everyone else has it figured out, which I am here to tell you right now, having sat next to some of the most successful people in the world, that is not what it looks like on the inside. That is not the, the whole experience, but you have to launch early often and learn as fast as you possibly can. And to your point, I think um, it's really, really important to seek out a career that is passion aligned. I've worked at companies where 100 plus hour weeks are the norm. And the reason why I didn't burn out in a 15 year career at that pace was because it was aligned with what I wanted to contribute in the world. I really believed in the mission, the people that I was working with. And um, those people, the the happiest people I know are working in an effort that is passionately the most miserable people I know, and they can have a lot of power, wealth, influence. But if it's not passionate, if it's something that their family or society or whatever pressure them into, they're miserable. And that's a recipe for burnout. It is. I think I'm going to throw away all my questions. We're having a much more. <laughs> I, I spend half my career working in the arts. I have one foot in business and one foot in the arts. And you see an enormous amount of passion in the arts. And my view is that there should be more creative people on business. Business boards, and there should be more business people. I uh, agree. In the arts. Look, let's. We do need to go on. Um, so, with your view of the world, which is which is a, a privileged and, and different view of the world, um, what opportunities do you, do you do you see now for, for for a kind of post a post Brexit post COVID Britain, the kind of economy we have, the relationship we have with with the rest of the world, um, from from your view, from the coaching that you're doing, from from people that you're working with. Um, what's what's the good and the bad? The bad is a lot of people have suffered. I don't want to, oh, I'm about to highlight the silver linings, but I do want to acknowledge this has been gut-wrenching. This has been traumatic in, in many categories for a lot of people. With that acknowledged, in my consulting work and in the general trends I'm seeing in the UK in particular, I was just there a month or so ago for London Tech Week. There's some incredible things that are happening now because in these um, times of constraint, we have to get really creative and much more efficient. We have to let go of old habits and patterns and people that are no longer serving us and really hone in when our energy feels limited and our opportunities for impact feel limited. You kind of get back to that core center. And that has accelerated some growth, learning, and um, honestly, impact for I would say literally every one of my clients in the UK, when they leaned into that, are better off on the other side of the pandemic than they were before. Now, I do know that that's not true for everyone. And my my clients are clients who are scaling. They they are largely tech-ish companies. But I um, So I know that not every individual has felt that kind of upswing. But I think one of the greatest things that happens universally is this passion realignment of just saying, and this is why we're experiencing the great resignation, which is very hard, but people are just saying, no, thank you to something that drains them and doesn't serve them. For me, um, I did not have this clarity at the moment, but when I look back on these career pivots that I made that at the time felt a little crazy and my parents were like, what are you doing? I did it around three things. And I think this is what I'm seeing as a, an incredibly encouraging trend. 
People are um, looking for opportunities to learn really, really fast. So they're seeking out roles that will challenge them. They will use their skills in a different way. Second, they are seeking out leadership that they really respect. We're getting rid of those bosses that treat you badly or environments that tear you down. And people this are is authentic leadership. This is authentic leadership. Exactly. And what I mean, I, I think that's an important clarification because what I mean by this is working for a leader, not that you just like or enjoy being around, but you that you want to become like. And when you're working for someone who you're absorbing these best practices and watching how they run a meeting or motivate a team, especially dur- during times of hardship and crisis, that lifts you up and that gives you a reserve and inspires you to also raise your game to the next level. And the third category is really around disruption. Yes, COVID naturally disrupted industries, business models, et cetera, our, ha- our daily habits. But I really mean it beyond that. It's disrupted our thinking of ourselves, our self-definitions. And that can feel really destabilizing. But when we put ourselves in the driver's seat and think, okay, how can I disrupt myself purposely in seeking out additional education? How can I reinvent myself? How can I reinvest in myself? Then you feel instead of uh, a victim of it, then you feel empowered of I am purposely choosing what is next for me. And that's what I see happening all across the UK right now and is really exciting. But I know it's also really hard. It is. I, I agree with you. I like the fact that people are investing in themselves. They're not at the behest of somebody else or a company that may not. If you've invested in your own skills, you can take that with you. What I am seeing, though, and it's interesting coming to New York this week, because uh, I think perhaps because we were early adopters of, of a vaccine in the UK, um, I would say the UK is kind of two or three months ahead in terms of people back in the office now. So I'm seeing in some of my businesses, the young people are back in the office, the pendulum quite scarily, actually, has swung a bit too far the other way. Uh, you know, they're all out drinking, you know, partying. The ones that have had COVID feel invincible. Uh, Tuesday night's the new Thursday night now, you know. And what I have noticed as a result of, of this pandemic, interesting to your take on that, is that, that, that I think is a concern. There's a serious point I'm making here, which is youth culture now seems to want instant gratification. Um, especially after the fact that they've not been able to do that during lockdown. And, and when I talk about the pension coming back and because you can get everything delivered the next day and uh, social media and communication is so open, it's like he's got it, she's got it, Kim Kardashian's got it, I want it, I want it tomorrow. Um, do you think that's a concern, this kind of youth culture of instant gratification where, you know, you can't learn to play the piano in three weeks? You know, it takes three years. I do see that as a trend. Uh, I want to own some responsibility in that. Having worked in tech, it is, it is a result of an algorithm. That kind of behavior, those kind of instincts have been taught to them and fed to them. I mean, the, you know, uh, whether it's your Netflix queue recommending to you what you watch next or your YouTube or your Instagram, all they're getting is instant gratification. I am so grateful I did not grow up up with social media. A, there's no delete button on the internet. And I'm really glad my high school like drama is not part of that. But um, B is like, they've been fed that they've seen that as normal. And so A, I don't want to blame them. Like uh, my generation who created these algorithms are responsible for that. And now we need to own some responsibility in helping coach them into how things actually work. And I think there's some amazing things that I'm seeing a lot of my consulting clients do to try and counteract this. And there's a story I share in the book, um, how this happened to me in my own career. 
Um, when I first started working at Google, I worked for Marissa Meyer, as you mentioned. Uh, she was at the time the vice president over search products and user experience, which is a very long title. It just meant we made really cool stuff. We got to bring in eyeballs. That was our job. And we created things like maps. They just launched Calendar like the week before I joined. That's how early days this was. Um, they were working on um, image recognition, et cetera, all the things that are part of our daily lives. In my first year at Google, I found it very fast paced. The company doubled number of employees in the single year, the year I joined. So there was a lot of things that were chaotic and you just had to run really, really fast and work really hard. At the end of that year, I finally felt like I had my footing and I came in to do my performance evaluation, my annual evaluation with her. And I felt good about it because after all of this crazy steep learning curve, I had performed pretty well on the goals I'd set for myself. I sat down thinking this was going to be a nice pat on the back conversation. And she was so disappointed in me. And at the time, it really hurt my feelings, actually, because she said, what are you doing? She she was disappointed that I had accomplished about 90% of my goals that I had set out for myself that year. And to her, that meant that I had not pushed myself far enough to contribute something of true value. I was playing it safe. I was staying in my lane. If I was getting nine out of 10 consistently, that is not what she needed for me. That is not what innovation looks like. And she, in that evaluation gave me the gift of giving me permission to just try some stuff and learn it at my pace. I wasn't expected to be perfect today. We were making things up as we went. We were learning really fast. And that is what I want the next generation to experience. I hope that leadership will have those conversations of saying, I want you to be here to learn line upon line. You're you here to deliver X, Y, and Z. About the learning from, from failure, actually. And that links in with um, with Jim Collins's kind of phrase about try lots of stuff and keep what works. Yes. When you find something that works, then you bet very heavily. Exactly. The odds, are, the odds are in your favor. Quick question. It's not, again, not on my list at all. When you're doubling in size at Google, does the culture just kind of run away with itself or is it crafted? Do you have to be careful that the culture stays along the tram lines that you that you want it to? Because if you're doubling in size, you've got all these new creative people that you've deliberately hired because they're the best of the bunch. How do you, how do you craft that? Or do you let it run wild? No. Yeah. You have to be so careful. Um, I saw that both at Amazon and Google, uh, both companies were in a rapid stage of hockey growth. Um, ho- what, what is it? Hockey stick scaling growth. And so what you had to do at both companies, I experienced, cause I joined both companies about a year after their IPOs. Um, and so what I saw at both was you have to institutionalize the way that you want people to behave. And that isn't as formulaic and dry and canned as it sounds. What it means is, are you hiring according to your values? Like literally the way you interview them, is it hiring for that? And that's much more predictive of their longevity at the company and their success than interviewing for core competencies. Way too many employers just hire for that checklist of experiences, certifications, what universities you go to. And if you're hiring for value alignment, then you've got people who are naturally driven towards delivering what you want and you don't have to coach them. The incentives are naturally aligned. A lot of core values negotiated and agreed on and then enforced rigidly? They are. So uh, at both companies, they were very purposely crafted. But it the difference is um, it doesn't matter what you put on your letterhead or what you say in your shareholders letter of like, this is our values. It's actually the way that leadership behaves, especially the earliest stage 
employees are the ones who set the culture and it's really hard to change. Very almost with no exception, have I seen a full culture change? I think what Satya Nadella did at Microsoft is one of the greatest exceptions of that, where they had become stagnant and they thought all their ideas were good and all their jokes were funny and they just were losing that innovative spirit. Satya Nadella was able to shift that. And he summarizes that in saying it was changing the culture from one that celebrated know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. I think he's the exception to this rule. So your culture is actually how are decisions made here? When we're choosing between good and good and we're making a calculated risk, what's that decision matrix like? How can we replicate that? In um, the year that I joined Amazon, this is back in 2002, Jeff realized that mission critical decisions were going to be made in rooms that he was no longer able to be in just because he couldn't scale. You know, a single person can't be everywhere at the same time. So he tasked his senior vice presidents with writing down what are now known as Amazon's leadership principles. And this was literally replicating Jeff's thought process, his value system in a way that he wanted his leadership teams. And really the trickle down effect was through every employee to be aligned in the in what we prioritize. For example, everyone knows that Amazon is customer obsessed. But that was kind of a crazy idea when he listed that as the number one leadership principle. That meant that when he wasn't in the room, any employee of any level, if they were choosing between, oh, this would make our customers really happy, but it's going to cost us money, they had permission to do that. There's no... Good. Let's, let's come back, if I, if I may, just to talk about trends. Um, as a result of, 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 of COVID coming and going, are there some new trends emerging, do you think, Anne, or are there just trends that were happening anyway that are speeding up? You know, we've seen a lot of dead shops in the high street that perhaps were in the sick bay anyway, to, to be honest. Um, or have you, you know, homeworking, people were already starting to do that hybrid model and it's accelerated it. And that's all very interesting. I think we can see all those. But do you think there are any brand new trends that have emerged that we should notice? I mean, I do think there were things that were already in motion that have really got traction, like you're saying about remote work or about gig, the gig economy was starting to really get going before and it's only accelerated now. I think we're going to see a lot of a workforce, especially the younger workforce who aren't looking for a full-time nine to five to provide for all of their learning and their growth goals and their influence. You're probably going to see them selecting and going to have a lot more of like specialists and consultants who come in and choose projects based on alignment of their interests and their goals, rather than just reactionarily, you know, being a full-time employee, taking a checklist of tasks that are dictated by a manager. I think we're moving farther away from that. And there's a pros and cons to that. In terms of brand new things I haven't seen before, I love that question. Um, I'm going to have to ponder on that. No, I, I think what I've actually just seen is some ideas that were in their infancies that were accelerated. They would have taken hold 10 years from now, and instead they took hold two years. Yeah. The, one, the one question I think we do have to address then, we were just talking about it before, was if you've got people that are hybrid working, they come into the office to get their little zap of culture. But if they are remote working entirely, you know, in a cabin in Montana, then uh, it's quite... It, it, it's a different thing to make sure that those culture values are pushed out, you know, down the Zoom line or the Teams line 
to, 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 for that feeling of, of, of belonging. And, and I think that's something that we'll have to work on. That, uh, I agree. I and I think that goes back to your last question about what is different that didn't exist before. I think what you're hitting on right here is it. What I see is in my clients who are now designing their return to the office plan, they're keeping some hybrid elements to it. But what I haven't seen pre-COVID that people are doing now is designing the office specifically for collaboration. We're no longer having your own little pod in your workspace and your your gray little desk. That work, that heads down, concentrated, I'm better if I'm not interrupted, happens in that hybrid. You can work from your home office, from your local coffee shop, wherever you get into that zone. But when we're in the office together, we want to design literally the, the physical space and the way your time is spent there for creativity, collaboration, debate, discussion. And that I think is amazing. Um, but we're still figuring it out. Yeah, I agree. I do. Yeah. Agree. Now let's come on to the bill though. And I don't know what the bill is in the United States where I'm sitting now, but in Britain, it's about 400 billion has been the kind of cost of, uh, of lockdown. Um, you know, who's going to, who's going to pay that bill? And, and what does that mean for big businesses relationship uh, with with government uh, and taxes. Um, you know, Elon Musk is finding now that you know, suddenly there's suddenly there's a, something else on his PL that he didn't know was there before. You know, he's paying this enormous amount of tax. Who's who's going to pay the bill? Unfortunately, I think there's going to be some sacrificial lambs who probably aren't the ones who should be left holding the bag. I'm actually so I'm based in Spain uh, now, and I'm incorporated both in Spain and in the United States. My take home is wildly different between the two countries. The United States, especially I'm incorporated in Washington state, um, their tax incentives are very entrepreneurial friendly. They want to incentivize you creating jobs and projects and contributing to the economy. So my take home there is dramatically higher than what I keep here in Spain for the same amount of work, the same quality of clients, et cetera. What I see here is I think that's a knee-jerk reaction from a country that is really suffering. I mean, Spain is such a tourist-based economy. They really need that lifeblood of people coming in, enjoying the Spanish sun. And when that was stripped from them, the knee-jerk reaction is like, well, we need to pull as much from our existing companies as we can. And they're really crippling the companies that can't afford it the most, which I think has the most potential for 10Xing their output if they don't cripple them right now. So I like to see the communities now stepping up and advocating for their small businesses. Um, Because what we've seen, there's so much opportunity for actually incredible homegrown companies and talents because the COVID stopped the normal flow of brain drain. Entrepreneurs here who are leaving university who might otherwise have been like, well, if I'm going to be successful, I have to go to California or New York. They stayed here. They found their like-minded tribe of people and they've created these companies that are actually having great impact, but they're still in that, you know, they're just two, three years in, they're in that fragile stage of not having a lot of runway. And if you overtax those companies that could become the next Google out of Spain, you're not going to, you're not going to see that grow. So I hope the governments are really thoughtful and think about a 10 year strategy rather than emerging. But I know that's really hard when they feel like. I, I, hope, I hope you're right. I think we've certainly seen in the UK uh, incorrectly that uh, the government has been sort of punishing the job creators, which is really not what you want uh, at all. And it's this balance between taking responsibility and big tech needs to take responsibility and big tech does need to pay tax. And, but but it's, it's that balance of not punishing the, the job creators and the, and the, and the risk takers. Yeah. Um, 
So, so that, that's that, that's interesting. Uh, we, we've already covered some some homeworking and um, and decided that that is here to stay. Um, but in terms of, I guess, how you manage people that are working at home, um, how do you make sure that they're they're not a drag on productivity, that they're actually a, a kind of benefit to what 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 are the new lessons we have to learn in terms of the discipline of of managing remote workers, do you think? I think it really comes down to management, those who are giving the assignments. Uh, First, you need to keep your hiring standards standards really, really high. If you have people you feel like you can't trust to work independently, that was a problem you created a long time ago. So let's think about how to up-level and really be thoughtful about who we hire. Second, once once they're here, are you giving them opportunities to up-level their skills? Are you reinvesting in your people? Third, and I think most importantly to your question about efficiency at home is how clear are you on the assignments? And I kind of think a lot of leaders, and I'm coaching my clients about this right now, is the ex- most leaders give you an assignment and they explain what they want, but they forget the most important element is the why. Why is this important to the success of the team? How is this tied to how we're winning right now, especially if it's tied to a pivot that you're making? Because you can't just assume that your employees can reverse engineer the task they've been given today and how the company is going to win now. When you help them feel like they understand what is on their desk today as a part of the pipeline of how we all succeed, they're naturally really motivated. Uh, A nice analogy of that is identify just the one or two things you need from them today. Because so many of us, especially working from home with dogs, and kids and uh, environments that weren't originally designed for working, you can get overwhelmed. But when I know what is the one thing I need to deliver for you today, you can really get a lot of efficiency when they understand the what and the why. You and I are sitting from a privileged position where we've got a desk and some space. You know, when I was, when I first moved to London, I was sharing an apartment with four other people and, you know, I would have... uh, can you still get those outcomes, you know, perched in a, in a corridor or sitting in a coffee house or, you know, sitting on your, your bed with your computer on your lap? Um, are we, are we, le- can we, are we learning to, to live in a world where we can still get, we can still drive productivity by doing that? A, I really sympathize with those who have had to work in those conditions for the last couple of years. I too am privileged. I just have a husband and a puppy, so I'm okay. Um, but I do want to say that it can be done because in my early years at Google, we literally had six people to an office. We were on top of each other, literally like packed in a room. And sometimes when channeled correctly, now I want to appreciate if you're in a flat with four roommates, maybe you didn't purposely choose them. It just kind of happened. But if you can be purposeful with the people you're surrounded with, Sometimes you get your best thought work done in a busy coffee shop or surrounded with like-minded people where you can just do a quick sanity check with them. So if you're purposeful in that, I don't think it's the the chaos around you or the volume or even the amount of space that you have this indicator. I think it's the quality of people around you. Because in those early years of Google, that was my favorite part of being at work was that hum of of a seemingly chaotic office that really kind of fueled our work because I always had someone to ask a question to. So I don't think it's so much the environment or the space, but in the quality of people that we're surrounded by. Looking back over your, your career, you've worked for three fantastic disruptors. And then there's another disrupting thing, which could be massive or could get washed aside. And that is the emergence of crypto, the emergence of cryptocurrencies, um, which means an enormous amount of, of flexibility of currencies that are running themselves. And they may be seen as an enormous threat to governments who like to generally 
control monetary policy. Um, is crypto emperor's new clothes, or or is crypto, are cryptocurrencies here to here to stay? I've noticed, by the way, before I got, jumped on the call with you this morning, I think there are twenty two countries now that have either banned or are in the process of not liking cryptocurrencies. Will they get over that, or is that becoming a trend in itself? I love this question. It's so apropos today, given Jack Dorsey's announcement yesterday of stepping down from Twitter to focus on Square, which he's renamed Cube because he wants to focus on crypto. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's here to stay. I am too late in recognizing this. That was a million plus dollar like mistake of not recognizing and getting on board much earlier. Like had I bought Ethereum or whatever, like a year ago, uh, that would have been a good investment. I think those countries that are banning it, that's another example of knee-jerk regulation that will hurt them in the long run. What we need to do, and I do understand I come from bias because I have worked inside tech for the last 15 years. But what we were always trying to do when we were meeting with policymakers is say, please lean in and ask questions about this, deepen your understanding, and then make decisions about how to um, regulate this based on what's best for your constituents. Too many lawmakers, when they see technology they don't understand, lean out and they just react out of fear. What I hope in this next space is that the next generation of leadership who are coming into power now are more innovation tolerant. They are allow it to have a little bit more space. Again, I know I'm, I'm very American, so we, we have a much higher tolerance for just letting stuff kind of find its place before trying to control it too much. It's very cowboy culture, I know. But I hope that regular, I do think it's in the best interest of building up a really strong economy to lean into this rather than react out of fear. I would not, I don't pretend to understand crypto or NFTs. I'm not an expert in any of those, but I am definitely leaning into the conversation and reading as much as I can about it because it's here to stay. But what's interesting is you've, you've worked with people who've come across brick walls of government regulation or people stopping them, but they found a way to plow on and push through against massive adversity. And people often talk about, you know, the greatness of, 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 you know, Google or Amazon, but actually they don't often talk about how, you know, we thought we were finished. You know, we thought we just couldn't push through that wall. Have you seen any particular qualities of it? And it's more than tenacity. It's not just keep going. It's, it's a kind of, is it a cunningness? Is it a way to go round the side and find a different way? What, what qualities have you noticed with the great leaders that you've, that you've worked with that have enabled them to just, achieve the impossible seemingly. Yeah, they really have. I do think that there's a common denominator here that I want to preface by saying, I know I said I am a fan girl. I know these people in these companies intimately well. I also don't want it to be misinterpreted that all of my answers here are hero worship. These companies have flaws. They have made mistakes. They have done things that had unintended consequences. But what I'm about to say is a, a generality of why Amazon and Google, for example, have been successful in in breaking through those brick walls in ways in which other very, very powerful companies didn't. So to oversimplify this, I think in general, those companies that have been able to reach massive scale do so through partnerships. Yes, they make missteps along the way. For example, Google, when um, we created Street View, didn't think about asking the German people if they wanted their homes photographed and put on the internet. They hated it. That was a huge misstep. That was a big problem we should have anticipated and been more tolerant for the privacy standards of a different country. 
But with that said, learning from that mistake, spending a lot of time with policymakers showing up in the countries, listening to their tolerances, designing an ability to control it that better reflects their values is the reason why they were able to continue to progress. And rather than just being shut down, that's an oversimplification. They're not perfect. Nothing's been done well. A a counterexample to that, for example, has maybe been Uber. Uber, Travis, is very famous. The, The founder of Uber was famous for literally putting his head through brick walls, going against lobbies, everything. A, he was very, yes, he was successful, but there's also a reason why they brought in a a different leader at at a certain stage who is much more collaborative and partnering. Another example is uh, Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork, the co-working space, also somebody who just really bucked against the tread and just like would headbutt anyone who got in his way rather than being collaborative and kind of. So I think in the long run, maybe you can have like a big flash in the pan success. But I think if you're playing the long game, it really benefits you to be more collaborative, thoughtful partner to the industries that you're disrupting. This is for another day, but that WeWork payoff was fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Failure, wasn't it? How? How? I don't know. I don't oh. know. I don't know. Okay. We're changing the world. We're disrupting business. But actually, in the background, you know, forget COVID. Is climate change going to finish us all off? Um, what do we need to do? How do we take responsibility? And more importantly, is tech the answer? Will tech find something to help us solve this, this problem? I yeah. certainly hope so. I am worried that we're too late. I'm really glad to see some very, very powerful people and nations finally taking some steps and and not just talking. Um, I do think the the last summit was way too much talk and not enough (laughs) action. I do think the tech will be a, a big part of this. I'm hoping because I think to oversimplify a very complicated problem, what we're doing now is we're trying to, uh, repent from some major sins that some of the most powerful nations in the world have committed. Uh, the United States, excellent example of- And are still committing, actually. Are still committing. Yes, yes. No, this has not been repaired. But what we're doing is saying, oh, sorry, our bad about like factories and waste and you know poisoning our, our environment. But now we're saying to developing countries, third world countries, you can't use that to get where we are. You can't, you have to limit yourself there. And we have to do repairs now. What I'm hoping technology can solve is that. I don't want there to be this continued opportunity gap while we're trying to save our planet. Both things are important. So I'm hoping that technology will help developing countries have an advantage and an opportunity to develop these um, self-sustaining economies through more efficient strategies. For example, there's really exciting things happening in batteries, um, in the way we store uh, solar energy. I'm hoping in those solutions, we can help them not have to go through the polluting systems that created very, very powerful nations and not leave them behind. But boy, I, I mean, really hope- I can't just say tech will take care of it. So no. We carry on as we are. We've got to take some responsibility, I think. Absolutely. As well. Yeah, it's a scary side. And that leads on to to kind of giving advice about the the, the future, which is my kind of final question in the the series, Anne, is what advice would you give to your children or friends' children um, as they enter the business world? um, What tips would you give them based on your experience? Oh, I I really love this question. I've actually just been talking to my siblings about this recently. Uh, I'm the oldest of seven. And so, and we have a broad age spectrum. My youngest surprise baby sister was born when I was 
21. So the, her generation and mine are, I literally could be her mom. So it's fascinating to watch her start her career now while I'm kind of entering the last third of mine. A is seek out that passion alignment and, but don't rush that process. It's okay for you to spend the first part of your career figuring out what that is. I did not choose tech. That was not my plan A. It got into my blood because I experimented with it, but I tried something on that I thought was a detour on the way to what my actual dream career was. So I would hope that early in people's careers, they're experimenting. They're trying some things on. They're um, being patient with themselves and, and evolving their skill set and their passions. Once you find that though, unapologetically go for it full force, make a lot of mistakes. Don't be afraid. Don't apologize for turning down a a job that might give you more money and choosing the one that is more fulfilling. Like really, once you find that core center, take your time to find it and then don't deviate from that. Don't be tempted by prestige or power or money. Those things aren't indicators of happiness and having worked for the wealthiest people in the world, I tell you right now, there's zero correlation between your paycheck and your happiness once your basic needs are met. And I could talk to you all day. It's been a privilege. There's so much unsaid that I'd like to ask you, but thank you. Thank you for your insights. Um, I think it's been, it's been great fun. And um, I love your kind of passion and, and, and energy for, for life and the fact that you're now sharing it. Um, and, and even the title, you know, bet on yourself takes it right back to you know, pushing the individual. So thank you very much. Happy holidays. To you um, too. And I look forward to talking to you again or meeting you in person. Thank, thank you, Gary. Thank you. Great. Too.